Good morning, Wisconsin. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's WTMJ Now. News, opinions, Wisconsin. Everything you need to know in the Badger State and beyond. Come give us your thoughts on the WTMJ Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Here's your host, Steve Scafidi. And good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. Yes, it's voting day in New Hampshire. Tomorrow's program, I'm going to have one of the uh, voters in New Hampshire join us on the the program in the 10 o'clock hour. Just get a feel for what that's like. He's actually the former chair of the Libertarian Party. And as you know, New Hampshire, very independent-thinking states. I pose an interesting question in the, uh, in the open of the show today. Why in the world do we let, for the most part, Iowa, a state of about three, just above three million people, and New Hampshire, which is basically the size, the whole state's the size of, uh, population-wise, the size of the metro area of Milwaukee, decide our presidential nominees? Why? Why would we do that? What am I talking about? Well, there are a lot of people, and I'm starting to fall into this camp, that have a pretty good idea that after today, the the races, not that the Democratic race wasn't already over when Joe Biden decided to run for re-election, at least for Republicans, this race is over. Christie gone. Vivek Ramaswamy gone. Burgum gone. Asa Hutchison gone. Ron DeSantis leaving over the weekend leaving Nikki Haley to kind of clean up the mess. Now, I would have argued that in the state of the race, it would have mattered a heck of a lot more if if Ron DeSantis would have dropped up before Iowa. Well, of course, he's never going to do that because he spent $150 million, which turns out to be like $6,000 per vote, which, whew, that's crazy money. It's actually my show poll today. If you're not on the uh, X, formerly known as Twitter, good life choice there. But you can certainly vote on the WTMJ talking text line, 855-616-1620. And a rather simple question on this Tuesday. I framed it this way. With the Iowa caucuses completed and the New Hampshire voters set to cast their votes today. Some cast them right after midnight. That Whatever that little town is. Six people voted. Not that it's a uh, harbinger of all things, but... Nikki Haley got all six votes. I don't think that's what the result's going to look like in New Hampshire, but you, know, you never know. There can be surprises in primaries. I guess I guess that's the, the uh, antidote to what ails me in my question about why we let states like Iowa and New Hampshire decide our nominees. But the question is this. Should other states be part of the early nominating process? Give you a few choices, as I often do. Absolutely. 47.5%, nearly half of you. Know how it's always been. To me, the worst answer for almost any question, 11%. Who cares? 40%. That's an interesting response. Who cares? Well, those of us who would like to see an actual competition, not one that's been orchestrated by the RNC, Ronald McDaniel, former Governor Scott Walker, Ryan Priebus, those folks who love Donald Trump and want to see this happen again, my opinion, also puts other, and there's only a few comments at this moment, but you can certainly weigh in, 855-616-1620. For those curious, it slows down for a while. And uh, we'll have South Carolina coming up, and the exact date is, for Republicans, 224. So we've got uh, a month. And then there's a ton of them on the 5th of March. North Carolina. 
Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, Alabama, Arkansas, California. There's a few more in here. Oh, that might be it. That's actually a an idea that makes sense. So I'm going to pose it a couple different ways. One, why would we let Iowa and, and New Hampshire have that kind of power? I, don't, I understand tradition. I understand that's the way it's always been. I hate that answer, though, because it, it suggests that we're, we're not open to change. Very unrepresentative states when it comes to the state of the country we live in now, the, or the, the look of the country now. In the case of the caucuses, very, very old voters skewing way out of a typical Iowan, right? None of the young people, I shouldn't say that, very few young people participate in the caucuses, overwhelmingly older, older Iowans. And it's a process that is antiquated, unrepresentative, and literally has superpower when it comes to picking our nominees. Would it not make more sense to have a mega day like we see in March, Super Tuesday, all of that, where we have many, many states all weighing in at the same time to get a better consensus, whole country consensus about where we're at as a country when it comes to these nominees? Because I, I listen to the candidates. Ron DeSantis, before he flipped on Sunday, warned us about Donald Trump. Nikki Haley continues to warn us about warn us about Donald Trump. But voters, at least in Iowa and New Hampshire, don't seem to be listening to those messages. 855-616-1620. Do we have to let Iowa and New Hampshire decide? I say no. I say we mix in about 10, 12 states, and we do it all on a Tuesday in February, and we kick it off that way. What do you think? 855-616-1620. The WTMJ Talk and Text Line. Your thoughts after this. Jackson says, we know you hate Trump. You said let the people decide. They have. Not really. Texter from the 414. Iowans, a small, very less than 10% of Iowans have decided for us. And a very small number of people who live in New Hampshire, which I just looked it up. It's 1.389 million people. Basically the size of Metro Milwaukee, Milwaukee and these surrounding areas. That's it. They're going to decide our race for us? Mm, I don't know. Seems rather illogical to quote uh, Spock from Star Trek. Um, From the 262, I don't like how the results of a few small initial contests determine who stays in the race. and makes the voting in most of the U.S. totally irrelevant. And here in Wisconsin, where our election date is one of the last ones, I think it's April 2nd, most of the candidates on our ballot aren't even still running by the time we get the vote in Wisconsin. Yes. You have essentially muted everyone else's opinion about this race. This is a opportunity for all those who say the people should decide to actually let the people decide. But we're not doing that because of how we set these primaries up and caucuses. From the 414 Steve, for the past four elections, I've voted as a Democrat, but if Nikki Haley was the GOP nominee, I would have to think long and hard between her and Biden as I really like her politics. I have literally heard this from hundreds and hundreds of people. I hate that Trump is interfering with the Republican Party actually attaining their goals. Nikki Haley's a wake-up call. And I said this with Eric and Vince earlier. This is my opinion, but I think I'm right. There was a small group of former electeds, non-electeds, 
and Republican Party higher-ups who decided a long time ago that Donald Trump needed to get another shot at this. The Ronna McDaniels, the Reince Priebus's, the former Governor Scott Walker's, and a lot of other people. And you see them all chiming in now with their, you know, their, their you know, sort of innocuous, well, you know, that's what the people want. Well, the people haven't had a chance to vote, especially in Wisconsin. How about a former governor saying, you know what, let the people in Wisconsin decide this. But we don't get that. We want to wrap up the race in January before most of us, the vast majority of us, have even had a chance to vote in this race and express our opinion. Uh, from the 262, one day DeSantis dislikes Trump and the next day supports him. How do you trust any of them? It's a fair question. Go to the phone lines. Mike from Illinois. Hey, Mike. Good morning, Steve. How are you? I am good on this Tuesday. What do you think? Yes. So I don't necessarily mind that those states started off because, you know, it starts off small and then grows. But I just wish they didn't have so much weight. Um, you know, my brother um, was a campaign manager for an Illinois congressman once, and I was with him on election night. And when two of the uh, precincts came in, he knew it was over already. And that seems to be the case with these first two primaries. Like, if it's so far ahead after these first two primaries, and obviously they have data to back that up, it's over. I mean, I wish it wasn't like that. I wish that, you know, it could go through some bigger states like South Carolina um, and maybe some other ones in between, South Carolina and New Hampshire. But um, I don't know how long this tradition goes back of having Iowa and New Hampshire first, but certainly as long as I've been paying attention to politics, it's been like that. Yeah, it goes way back. Thanks for the call, Mike. Look. The reason I'm talking about it is because I think it's unrepresentative of what we as a country stand for. Two very, very low population states. I would argue that if you looked at their demographics, they wouldn't even be representative of the country as a whole. Doesn't mean there's anything wrong with New Hampshire. I'm going to talk to a New Hampshire voter on the show tomorrow. I've been to Iowa many times, love the state. I just don't want like less than 10% of their population deciding who our nominees should be. I think it's a fair assessment of the current situation. I think this is the other Steve from Oak Creek joining us. Hey, Steve. Yeah, good morning, Steve. Good morning. Uh, I agree that the system is kind of kind of uh, messed up. My opinion is that the a, having been a governor is the best preparation for being president. As a governor, you run the executive branch at the state level. You work with the legislatures and the courts. I think each party should select their candidate from the core of current or former state governors, and then that is the candidate for president again, and then change the title of president and vice president to governor general and lieutenant governor general. Wow. Big changes. Yeah, big change. It's needed. Yeah, all right. Thanks for the call, Steve. The other Steve from Oak Creek. Look, again, the reason I brought this up is I don't like the current system. I'm not a fan I don't hate tradition, but just doing things the same way we always did, given that countries changed dramatically over the last 200-plus years, seems silly to me. I mean, here's, here's the extra silliness tonight. The current president is not even on the New Hampshire ballots because they were arguing about the primary calendar, which is something they should argue about. At the end of the day, the Biden name's not on the ballot in New Hampshire. How insane is that? He's going to be the nominee for Democrats. Makes no sense. A couple of texts, and then we'll get to break here. Uh, Steve, I totally agree with you. Also, And I would also put the antiquated electoral college in this category. My vote as an individual citizen seldom counts. Yeah, perhaps. Although, 
you got to be careful with that. It's not just about population. Otherwise, small population states would have zero input into who their president is, and that's not fair either. Uh, from the 414, I would have paid top dollar to watch Trump debate Chris Christie. Yeah. We have a former president who's afraid to debate. And somebody asked me this question the other day. Why is that? And I turned it around. Why do you think that is? And I got this. Something's not right there. He isn't as strong as he was in 2016, certainly, and maybe in 2020. He has made a lot of unforced errors on the campaign trail. Now, the biased media, which some people call them the mainstream media, I would just say the biased media, they're not going to cover that. And they'll do the what about isn't that we always see, because let's be honest, the current president has made a lot of unforced errors as well and has not been the vibrant candidate that uh, a lot of Democrats expected, which is why he's struggling with some of this. We'll, we'll slip in Greg from Cedarburg real quick here before we go to break. Hey, Greg. Hey, Steve. Great show. Thank hey, you. You know, I've always had this feeling, and I don't know if you've ever watched the Netflix series uh, Succession. If you haven't, watch it. But you know what happens in, before, the, before they take a vote on who's going to become president? All of these rich people in the country sit in a room and decide who they're going to get their money to and who their backing is. Yep. And it and and they tell us people, the hardworking people, these are your candidates. These who you should vote for by sending us just one right after another commercials on why they're so good for us. Yeah, the ugly and reality of funding I, it, politics. 2024. It is. It's the ugly part. But I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah. Thanks for the call, Greg. I I can't disagree with that. We're going to let billionaires, not exclusively, but almost, decide who our nominees are. I don't like it. You shouldn't like it either. Quick break. We're going to be joined by local writer Dan Schaefer in a little bit here. I want to take Scott from South, South Milwaukee real quick. Hey, Scott, welcome to the show. Good morning. Hey, Steve. My, all right, my, my thoughts on the, on, the whole, on the whole process is that it, it takes too long. Why should two states like Iowa, New Hampshire, whatever, have their, their primaries um, their primaries in, in the month of January, which is ten months before the general, which is ten months before the general election, so much can change. Whatever over over that time period to have the trends started out, whatever ten months ten months ahead of time. I, I personally, whatever think that the whole process should all be done, whatever in no more than I'll, I'll say four months. You have one month. Of, you have one month of primaries. Those primaries, whatever would be regional primaries. You have one month, whatever for your for your nominating conventions. And then you have a two-month general election campaign. We're wrapped, we're wrapped, wrapped up by wrapped up whatever with a with, with the final election. And I also whatever wish that that we would go away from partisan primaries and go to whatever a jung, a, a jungle primary system, whatever, so that the labels of the parties are completely el- eliminated and people are voting for names and ideas over over parties and in, in general ideologies. Thanks for the call, Scott. Look, here's my my overall take, and I appreciate all, all your input on this, and, and we may get back to it in the 10 o'clock hour as well, and we'll certainly talk about it with Dan Schaefer here. Look, I don't want states like Iowa and New Hampshire leading the way. I understand tradition, and that's history. Could care less about that. And frankly, there's 3 million people in Iowa and uh, 1.3 in New Hampshire. That's less than the state of Wisconsin. Those two states are going to have an, an inordinate amount of say and who the candidate is for Republicans in November. Don't like it. That's my that's my complete thought on it. I don't understand why history has to determine what we do now when everything else in our world has changed. That's my take. All right. 
You know him as our regular Tuesday guest, Dan Schaefer, political columnist, the guy from the recombobulation area, joins us. Thoughts on the uh, New Hampshire primary since we've been chatting about that for a little bit? Yeah, it's a big day. I, I was listening on the way in here. I, I agree with you that I do not like the system that we use to, to nominate candidates. I think the Democrats are going in the right direction by changing up that uh, the early states, at least, you know, instead of going from uh, instead of Iowa, New Hampshire, having South Carolina, Nevada, Georgia and Michigan. I think that's a better representative sample of kind of where the country is right now. But I also I also think that, you know, um, yeah, I mean, th- those changes are the time to talk about those changes is not now. Yeah, no, uh, yeah. But that, that ship has sailed. That ship has sailed. Yeah. Um, and, and the silliest example is Joe Biden is not even on the ballot in, in New Hampshire. It's like this is insane, and this is how we are nominating our candidates. It's, I, I don't get it. It's it's nuts to me. Yeah, I guess uh, I guess New Hampshire Democrats didn't like being taken off, uh, you know, the, the, taken out of the leadoff spot, I guess, so to speak, in the primary calendar. I'm going to talk to but. my friend Nicholas Sarwark yes, uh, tomorrow on, on the program. He's the former chair of the Libertarian Party and lives in New Hampshire, and he's voting today. I'm just on the sense of what this all felt like post mortem, sort of after the uh, the vote totals are all tabulated, and just to get a sense of what this felt like, because I bet you they were bombarded with advertising, political ads, and all the appearances and stuff. For for a year, probably. I yeah. mean, we've seen, you know, these candidates, uh, you know, campaigning in Iowa and New Hampshire for, for much of the past year. The way we nominate our leaders is such a, it's such a silly process. Yeah, but, exactly. but here we are on the day of the New Hampshire primary, and, and uh, this silly process is probably going to lead us to another Donald Trump victory, it seems like, right? He's way ahead in the polls. Uh, the, the people who have dropped out of the race, Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, have endorsed Trump. Uh, and I don't know what, what do you think? I know, I know you've been a fan of Nikki Haley in the past. What's the number you think she needs to get to, to stay in this race within five percentage points of Donald Trump. So if it, I saw a poll today that showed Trump at close to 60% and Haley at about 40%. Do you yeah. think she drops out if that's the number? I don't think she's going to drop out because why would you, right? Yeah. I, I think there Well, ha- she has South Carolina. She, that's her home state. I imagine she stays. That doesn't there, even look good. That doesn't look good either. But here's the reason why. Now that we're down to really one opponent to Donald Trump, there has to be a candidate that some of the later primaries, perhaps, and even if we're talking about this at the convention, we're really up, up a creek. There has to be an alternative to Trump that's at least viable, and that means you got some votes during the primaries. If there's no viable candidate, it's chaos at the, at the, uh, at the convention in Milwaukee because I feel, and a lot of other people that kind of talk about politics and, and look at politics every day, feel there, there's, a, there's a moment coming, and maybe it's a conviction in one of those cases, maybe it's something else, where voters are going to have to say to themselves, this can't be the person. And for that reason, I think Nikki Haley stays in a little longer. What will get me upset as a supporter of Nikki Haley, public publicly supporting her, if she does what, and this is a n- nice segue to our next conversation, what Ron DeSantis did. One day earlier... He's he's calling out. I played the clip on the show. He's calling out Trump as basically, you know, one day is your your enemy, next day is your best friend. And and Ron DeSantis basically did the very thing he accused Trump of doing and others. Mm-hmm. So it makes no sense. Ron DeSantis dropped out. What's the what's the uh, news of that story? I think I think this is one of the worst run presidential candidate candidacies that we've seen in a long time. Uh, you know, he was so far ahead of the rest of the field, really the only candidate within striking distance uh, of Donald Trump. And that was and the, I think the biggest problem for him was that he announced his, his campaign. He launched his campaign with that disastrous launch on Twitter with Elon Musk. Uh, and I think he the, the strategy this campaign took in many ways trying to run to the right of Donald Trump, trying to be a more extreme 
uh, candidate than than Donald Trump on a number of issues. Uh, it just just didn't work at all. It, I think so many people like yourself just wanted, you know, a sane, competent, non-Trump alternative. Yeah. And he could have very easily just taken that lane, but he tried it. Instead, he just got sucked into the extreme end of the party. I think that's perhaps representative of the type of the governor that he is. Um, but, you know, he had three years of runway of conservative media just, you know, elevating him as this save, Republican savior during COVID, during the pandemic, all these different things. All of it backfired. And, and I think, you know, there have been a lot of a lot of a lot of comparisons to uh, former Governor Scott Walker's campaign. Uh, I, I think this answer is that. even worse than than Scott Walker's campaign, because Scott Walker, I did I crunched the numbers on this. Scott Walker was never really, you know, out front of the rest of the field. Scott Walker was at like 15, 20 percent. Right. It was a very crowded field. Marco Rubio had a lot of momentum at the time, whatever. Um, DeSantis being at like 30 to 40 percent. Before he officially got into the race and have nothing but a downward trajectory, just a straight nosedive the whole campaign. I just think it's it's one of the worst campaigns, probably the worst since Rudy Giuliani ran in 20, 2008. We'll get to that story because there's a weird Rudy Giuliani story from I think it was last night or the night before. Where he was camped out in front of a Haley event. In a car, looking at his laptop. Have you seen this picture? I saw the picture. I never know what to what, what to make of anything going uh, on. Clearly, with that Rudy has lost his mind. Let me ask you about the Ron, Ron DeSantis thing. He was up in the polls. He was the, the challenger. He spent apparently one hundred and fifty million dollars in essentially Iowa because he wasn't really a factor in the New Hampshire mm-hmm. run up to get twenty one percent of the votes. He to, get, spent, to get two percent ahead of Nikki Haley, yeah, you know, who didn't spend that much. Right. And it, it's it's interesting because I think the, when somebody broke the numbers down, it was like six thousand four hundred dollars per vote. <laughs> it's like during the course of that whole thing, that's well, crazy. That's why last week when I was on the show with you here uh, talking about those Iowa caucus results, I thought the fact that DeSantis came in second at the number that he did spelled doom for his camp- campaign. The fact that he only was at like what twenty one percent after going all in on Iowa, Iowa spending more than a hundred million dollars, it's just an absolute disaster of campaign, and and uh, I think reflective of where a certain part of the Republican Party is. Dan Schaefer from the Recombobulation Area. If folks want to find your great writing, where can they find it? Uh, you can find it at the recombobulationarea.news, uh, Recombobulation Area on Substack. You can subscribe to get it right in your inbox. Uh, brilliant writing from the left side of the political aisle, but uh, still very, very strong uh, writing on the state of the races, not only in the country, but also a lot of the political activity that's happening right here in Wisconsin, which we'll shift to after the break. Dan Schaefer, our guest as he is most Tuesdays right here on WTMJ Now. Thanks for tuning in on this Tuesday edition. I am in a fantastic mood. We're talking to our friend Dan Schaefer from the Recombobulation area about politics in our country, our great country, and here in Wisconsin. The big question, Dan, in Wisconsin is is the uh, redistricting question, right? And you've wrote, written a bunch of pieces on it. I was look, looking at an older one from September, um, and you, you talked about the... Let's start with that one, then we'll get to the, the substance of your latest piece on the recombobulation area, which is, is essentially looking at the competitive, competitiveness of, of, of the districts in a sort of a new map era, which I think we all agree is going to happen, probably in some form or fashion. We don't know what that's going to look like yet. But if you go back to, I think it was September when you wrote the piece about the idea from Republicans, which they, by the way, they've refloated that idea, and I think they're discussing that today in Madison. Potentially, yeah. You made a couple um, points that I want to just ask you about. So there's all this focus on the Iowa model, mm-hmm. right? They apparently do it better than most. And it, they're, they're, I guess the idea is, not to get too deep in the weeds, is to make things more fair, more competitive, to balance 
balance your district so they look more like the electorate of your state. Is that fair? Well, I think the, the main idea from the Iowa model, the, the part of the Iowa model that's good and I think should be replicated here, is that you have a, a body that is not the legislators themselves drawing the map. So you would have, in Wisconsin's case, the legislative, the nonpartisan le- legislative reference bureau, bureau drawing the maps. Uh, the part of it that's that's a problem, the part of it that is not the Iowa model, and I've seen a lot of reporters refer to the Voss thing as the Iowa model. There are, officials, uh, the, there are officials on both sides of the aisle in Iowa who have responded to this, saying that this is not the Iowa model. What are they saying? The They have said that you know this is not the Iowa model because it doesn't have the same approval process. So the introduction of the maps drawn by a nonpartisan body, that part's good. That part, I think, should be replicated. The part that's not uh, good and should not be replicated is that it cuts the courts out of the process. So in, the, in Iowa, there is a state Supreme Court oversight of the process. The Voss bill cut the Supreme Court out of the process. Gee, I wonder why. Well, it's an uh, obvious political play there. Obvious political play there. Yeah. And he, uh, it would let the lawmakers amend the maps if there was a stalemate. Well, we're in Wisconsin. We have divided government. A stalemate is pretty much inevitable. So they have cut the courts out and given themselves final say in the approval process. Not exactly the Iowa model. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a process that's riddled with trap doors and, and loopholes. And my, my friend Phil Rocco from Marquette University, who writes sometimes for the Recombobulationary, I put it best when he said, a better way of thinking about this bill is an Iowa-style redistricting plan with several Wisconsin-style escape hatches that nullify the whole thing. <laughs> right. I, I guess the, 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 I'm going to do a big question, then we're going to kind of narrow focus on, on sort of the idea of, of what the new maps might look like in new district lines. So in a state like Wisconsin, it's not unreasonable to expect that a party that has massive majorities in the Assembly and the Senate would do everything they could to hold on to the power. I mean, you would at least agree with that assessment, right? I suppose. Yeah. I mean, I think – like I don't in, know, just I don't like know why in they're Illinois. running from, from competition. Uh, but you just know. like Illinois, that's how it works. I mean, that's the reality, right? So they're, they're skewed Democrats have all the power. I mean, that they're a Democratic majority state, though. We're a 50-50 state. Yeah, I get it. Sometimes we are, and sometimes we're not. You could argue that in the case of Jimmy Baldwin, we're nowhere close to 50-50. Well, Democrats have won 14 of the last 17 statewide elections. Also, great point. So are, are we 50-50? Are we, if it, well, should our maps then reflect that's a more Democratic-leaning state to. then? Yeah, that's the point should, I'm trying to get Should to. that be? Because Republicans have had more than 60 of the 99 assembly seats for more than a decade. And I would argue that's because they drew really smart lines for Republicans. They gave, when, them, when they, they gave themselves an advantage. They tilted the playing field in their advantage. They so, absolutely did. So, so that, I, that's part of what I got into in the column that I posted today uh, at the Recombobulation Area, which is digging into the, the issue of competition uh, on these maps. And I think one of the things that we've seen because of this gerrymandering uh, in the state legislature, there have been fewer and fewer closely contested competitive races. In the 2022 election, only eight of the 99 assembly races were decided by less than 10%. I mean, there's really not that much competition happening. I think competition is a good thing. I think competition brings out our best, whether it's in sports or politics. So I, I think, and I took a deep dive in these maps, and the uh, there's six submissions now being considered. Uh, one of them is essentially the same map that we have now right. uh, from, the, from the Republican legislators. But all of the other maps, the five of the six other maps being considered, including ones introduced by the right-wing uh, Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, would 
significantly increase the number of competitive districts, significantly increase the number of districts decided by less than 5%, less than 10%, and less than 15%. I've broken that all down uh, in a piece published today at the Recombobulation Area. I'm actually going to have Rick Esselberg from the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty on the program Thursday, I think in the... Don't quote me, but I think it's 930. I'll ask him about that. So... Six. I think their map actually followed the criteria set by the court. I don't Doesn't think the legislative Republicans that did. That, that does not surprise yeah. me. Neither one of those two things surprises me. Yeah. All right, so if we're looking at maps that are competitive and fair, whatever fair means to all of you out there and, and to us sitting in the studio here, whatever that means, what do we think today? What do you think today of the six? What has the most? What is the most likely choice, do you think, and what will that look like? Obviously, uh Contiguous districts was a big issue, right? Mm-hmm. Certainly the contiguity question is, is what they ruled on. And, and in that ruling, they also uh, talked about the partisan impact. They, they called on the people drawing the maps to, to consider partisan impact and to abandon the least change principle, which was pretty much made up uh, during the last round of, of uh, redistricting uh, in 2021 and 2022. Uh, and so I think, you know, there's a map submitted by Governor Tony Evers, uh, map submitted by the petitioners in the case, uh, led by uh, liberal law firm, firm Law Forward, and so I think there are, you know, and, and Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. I think there there could potentially be a way to kind of pick and choose the best uh, of these maps. But this process is going to be run by two uh, consultants appointed by the court. They will review the maps. They will weigh in uh, on February first. So next week we will have uh, a response from you know the the people kind of in charge of this process. They could choose one of those six maps. They could you know kind of piece together their maps, or they could redraw their own uh, under the criteria that the court set out. What is your head telling you today, or your heart about what that what might look like next week? Do you think it's going to be a draw their own or one of the six? I, that I'm not really sure. I'm not gonna you know I don't know enough about how these uh, these folks operate to to understand. Um, you know, what they might choose. But I think there are good attributes of, of each of these maps, uh, save for one. There's one clear outlier with the most municipal splits, most board splits, uh, most uh, partisan imbalance and all of that. That is the legislative Republican maps. So five of the six ha- ha- do have strong criteria to it, and I think have, have attributes that could be pulled in together to create a, a real good map for the state of Wisconsin. He's Dan Schaefer from the Recombobulation. We'll take a break here. Lots more to get to in our remaining 10 minutes. We'll do it after this. Dan Schaefer, our guest, as he is every Tuesday, 930. Greater writer of the Recombobulation Area. How can folks find it? Uh, you can find it at therecombobulationarea.news, Recombobulation Area on Substack. You can subscribe, get it in your inbox. Also follow me on Twitter at Dan R. Schaefer, where I occasionally tweet about things other than the Milwaukee Bucks. And by the way, because I... I, I you know, it's an overused term, fair and balanced, and I don't try to use it very much. But um, on the other side of the political aisle, Christian Snyder will join me at 1130 today. He will be part of my new 9 o'clock hour when I get that rolling in a couple of weeks. And uh, a newest ad is James Wigdeson, who's done some great political writing over the years. He will also be part of that mix as well. So we have both sides represented. All right. I am not a fan, Dan Schaefer, of my Republican friends downplaying good or great economic news because it makes Donald Trump, his candidacy, easier or better and the fact that he's donald trump himself has said you know what i would you know stock market i'm paraphrasing stock market crash would actually be good for me you know no it's not good for anybody and let's not hope for that you have some economic 
good news. Yeah, I think you know. I think you're right about that. We've got a, the American uh, uh, economic mood is improving. There was a, stories about the consumer uh, index rising. The the stock market closed on an all time high yesterday. And also here in Wisconsin, you know, I used to be a business news reporter. I worked at Biz Times, yeah. Milwaukee Business Journal. I uh, wrote a lot of uh, business news story that I wrote a lot of stories about job growth. And you know, we're adding jobs. We're 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 not adding jobs. We're losing jobs. The unemployment is up, down, all that different things. Well. Last week, in uh, in the Wisconsin Department of Workforce Development, uh, reported that the state hit a record high in total non-farm jobs for the second contest- consecutive month. Unemployment remained at just three point three percent, well below the national rate, and labor force participation and overall employment numbers increased. Did you hear a whole lot of stories? About this over the past week, this no. this was a story, uh, you know, that came out uh, late last week uh, from the Department of Workforce Development. You know, when I was in that business news world, there, this was a story that you would jump to write about the jobs numbers, in the, especially in the early twenty early part of the twenty tens when everybody was focusing on you know just the recovery from the Great Recession. Why isn't this a story right now? Because politics has infested and infected every bit of media now, and even the politics of Donald Trump, the politics of in general, say to everyone now, if, if our side, whatever side that is, is not on the right side of this issue, we have to ignore it or downplay it. And I can guarantee that if I talk about economic news, the positive stuff, someone will say, what about inflation? Even though inflation numbers have, have started to come back. Mm-hmm. And even the Fed policy suggests we've turned that corner. Yeah, don't hear about it because people aren't talking about it. That's why I try to talk about it. That's the ugly reality of it. Well, and I think one of the things, too, that I used to hear, whenever there would be good economic news, uh, you know, everybody in the business business community would jump with a statement saying, like, this is, you know, an indicator of what Scott Walker is doing, an indicator of this and that, and blah, blah, blah. We're not hearing any of that right now, which I think is frustrating because if you want to be, like, a, a respected nonpartisan voice and not just, you know, a, a one-sided lobbyist on some of these issues, I think some of the folks in the business community maybe should say something. Thing that hey this this is a good thing uh, to have the, a record high in jobs in Wisconsin. The biggest fallacy related to politics and the economy or economic performance is that the party matters. I've seen more evidence lately that it doesn't. It's it's not just that one piece. There's many things, many factors, including what the rest of the world is doing. Dan Shaver got to cut it short there. Always great to talk to you. We'll do it again next Tuesday. Thanks so much, Steve. Dan Shaver from the Recombobulation Area. We'll- Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's WTMJ Now. News, opinions, Wisconsin, everything you need to know in the Badger State and beyond. Here's your host, Steve Scafidi. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Tuesday program. Yes, I have opinions. Yes, I will share them, and I want you to as well. You can do that on the uh, WTMJ Talking Text Line, 855-616-1620. We were talking about the uh, the early primaries and why we have this like overwhelmingly focus on these primaries that are very unrepresentative of the American country that we that uh, we celebrate and live in. And, and I I'm not a fan. And I could care less about the tradition. I know some people for some people that's a big thing. Could care less. Change is good, and embracing that is as I think is a really smart way to start looking at politics. Why do I say that? Because doing it the same way over and over again gives us the same result, and we all know what that leads to, the I-word, which is insanity. And if you've looked at Washington, D.C. lately, it's on full display. Both sides, crazy proclamations. You know, I could could literally, I, I may do this at some point in the next month. I could take any person of either side, either political persuasion, 
and any issue, I could play two pieces of audio where they would contradict themselves. And I've done it recently with uh, people like Ted Cruz and Ron DeSantis. It's, it's like easy. I could literally do that for an hour on the program. And maybe that'd be illuminating. Maybe it wouldn't be. Because, frankly, I don't, I don't, I'm not confident that in 2024 Americans have any interest in even hearing any of that anymore. It's literally no rules. You know, there's this new no labels party. Maybe we need a no rules clause because that's really what's happening. One day you hate the uh, person you're running against. Even he calls you, you know, essentially a pedophile or a, a killer. <laughs> the next day, and I give him my endorsements enthusiastically. He is the smart choice. That's the silly absurdity of politics. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask a different kind of question, one that I haven't asked before on the program, I think ever. And um, set your uh, watches. It's ten eleven on Tuesday. How should we cover Donald Trump in the year ahead? I'm, I'm really curious how we should cover this. This candidacy seems like it's going to happen, right? It's going to be Trump-Biden 2.0, right? Happened in 2020. will probably happen again in 2024, barring maybe a conviction. I don't know. Seems to be wishful thinking by some people more than, any, more than a reality now. And again, not shocked by this. Because as I've told you at the beginning of the show, you never hear this anywhere else. There are people that have been actively working to make this happen on behalf of Republicans. They don't talk about it or they they hint at it. But they've been making quiet inroads into the uh, decision making. And they're, let's be honest, happy that it's going to be Donald Trump. Now, and I, I said this earlier away from the show. The only way this Trump stuff stops, and you all, you all know my opinion on Trump. I don't need to refresh that. You know where I'm coming from. I didn't vote for him before. I'm not going to vote for him this time. I'd say that all the time, out loud, on the radio. You can take that for what it's worth. The only way this stuff stops is if voters say, you know what? No. So whatever 2024 is going to be, whether it's Biden, Trump, the only way this nonsense stops, this say anything, generally on stations that agree with you or networks that agree with you, even though it's silly, not true. Just say anything because nobody fact checks anything anymore. If voters overwhelmingly reject it. Now, right now, voters are saying, hey, Donald Trump, he's our guy. And I'm looking at this race. We are going to literally spend from, let's say, the end of January, early February until November talking about the same race we, we just saw in 2020. A race that Joe Biden nearly won. Will we have the same results this time? Have no clue. Zero clue. Anybody that says they have a clue, they don't know what they're talking about, or they're lying to you. And depending on who I talk to, Trump wins easily. Trump gets landslided by Joe Biden. To be fair, probably somewhere in the middle. Although, again, the only way this... Trump machine is shut down as if, if voters overwhelmingly reject him. And I know a lot, that makes a lot of people mad, but that's, that's how you end these things. Cut their knees out from underneath them. That's it. We're done. So here's the, here's the challenging point. And that's why I want to get your answer to this question. How do we, how should we cover Trump this year? How should we cover him as a radio show, as a TV network? How would you cover Donald Trump? You can't ignore the trials, right? They're a fact, just like we shouldn't ignore the hearings at this point related to Joe Biden, 
his relationship with his son, Hunter Biden, his legal challenges. Can't ignore that. Have to talk about it. That's in a different phase, right? That's in the hearing phase, not the court phase, for the most part. Hunter Biden's facing charges of his own that are, are certainly going through that legal process, but that's not impacting the president's current president right now. Could be in the future? Sure. Somebody establishes a link. We haven't seen that link so far. How do we cover Donald Trump? Now, one of my texters says this on the WTMJ Talking Text. I think your audience would appreciate if you would have more people with a conservative Republican viewpoint. Well, you know, I've had I have Christian Snyder on at 1130 today. Bill McCoshin on Friday, solid conservative, great credentials, chief of staff for governor, former Governor Tommy Thompson. Rick Essenberg, who uh, is the president of the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, one of the most conservative think tank organizations you'll ever find. You know, listening is a skill, and maybe you're, you're not tuning in on the days where those folks are on, but he'll be on Thursday at 930-ish. I announced earlier today that James Wigderson, Jim Wigderson, who's done some brilliant writing, conservative viewpoint, will be uh, joining me uh, on Tuesdays in the future. Already starting to work on some of that, that those details. Very conservative columnist. So it depends, of course, on what you're hearing and how you're listening. I would think that at this moment, end of January 2024, we would want a full exploration of both candidates, not conspiracy theory stuff. The facts as we know them. Here are the facts. Joe Biden, incumbent president, current president, is not popular, even among Democrats. That's a fact. We've seen the polling that suggests that. Whether that's border policy, whether that's uh, sort of an ineffective international relationships with and challenging with Israel, Horrible pullout of, from Afghanistan, rising threats from China and Russia, inability to close the deal with Congress on funding for Ukraine and Israel. And that's both sides. I get it. How should we cover Donald Trump? I'm going to take a break here. Already got some phone calls. Love to hear from you as well. How should we cover Donald Trump? You can't ignore him. He's going to be the candidate, most likely, barring. Who knows? If you think he's awful, maybe we'll say that. If you think he's the the, uh, second coming, maybe we say that. What's the right answer, though? Those are rather nebulous concepts. What's the right answer? You tell me. 855-616-1620 on WTMJ. How would you cover Donald Trump? Just curious what you think, because we're going to be spending a lot of time and energy on this program, 9 o'clock hour, and on my Decision Wisconsin podcast, which I do twice a week. Uh, I had a great, it should be out, it might be already out on WTMJ.com with uh, Jake Curtis, a local attorney who uh, was working on behalf of the uh, Ron DeSantis campaign. We talked about that, the fact that uh, DeSantis dropped out. Um, That podcast, Decision Wisconsin podcast, will be up on WTMJ.com momentarily if it's not already up, so... And then uh, kind of an interesting one on Wednesday for uh, publication on Thursday. We'll be joined by Ben Wickler on the podcast, the Session Wisconsin podcast, who is the chair of the Democratic Party in Wisconsin. All right, Peter on the phone lines from one of my favorite places. I actually hunt in uh, Wapaka County. Hey, Peter. Hey, how are you doing? Good, good. What do you think? 
I, I think Republicans have a reality problem. Um, they've allowed their media to lie to them. They've allowed their politicians to lie to them so long and so much that they don't know what the truth is anymore. Um, you need to start fact-checking politicians when they're when you're interviewing them. Uh, you can't allow the lies to go on. And we've had too much of that where we just uh, uh, media allows uh, the candidate to say whatever they want and, and not follow up with questions, not hold their feet to the fire. Let me um, ask you this question, Peter. Let me ask you this question. Do you think every candidate yeah. lies? I I think they spin their their uh, statistics to their favor whenever they can. Um, sure. Literally, the, the term is spinning. Yeah, that's exactly right. Thanks for the call, Peter. Um, yeah, that's the problem. This is the reality of politics in 2024. None of this is breaking news, but it, it needs to be established because, again, I'm asking the question, how should we cover all of this this year? It doesn't matter what the facts are. Let's say the facts are that um, inflation is coming back to a more normal pace, right? Not 8%, 9%, but coming back to you know 3%, which is, is more of a sort of a normal acceleration of inflation. Obviously, you want prices that remain the same, but that's not the reality. Prices almost always go up over time. So that's a, that's a fact, right? But yet when I hear these stories reported on some pretty credible networks, especially the, the old broadcast networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, there's often spin attached. Well, stock, stock market's going crazy, looking fantastic, but, and the reason that spin is attached, because it has to be two-sided, right? It can't just be good news. As I speak today, there's the market record highs. S&P, NASDAQ, Dow. Yet there's this percentage of the population, oh, this is all magic. This is fairy tale stuff. This market's going to crash. And, you know, I, I was watching some financial shows yesterday, which is kind of the missing piece of my my expertise when you're as a talker. I wanted to fill that in. So I watch a bunch of different shows in the afternoon when, I, when I'm getting ready for tomorrow's show to kind of fill in some of those gaps. What are people talking about as far as the economy, the markets? What are they saying? What are they thinking about when it comes to inflation, economic policy, Fed policy? Anybody that does what I do should probably be doing more of that, given the, you know, the numbers we're seeing. Sam joins us from McHenry, Illinois. Hey, Sam, welcome. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Sure. What do you think? Stock market. Let's start with that. Okay. The government keeps the, – the, just a quick comment on that and buying – Biden, the government keeps infusing printed money into the stock market. That always juices it up. But most people are like, okay, I still need to buy a car. I can't afford a car, and I can't afford the interest rates. I want to buy a house. I want to get started. Can't afford that either. Oh, I'd like to retire. No no good news there either. So that's what the public's looking at right now. The stock market, I've said for years, it's basically a rich man's playground. Even though middle-class people have 401Ks and IRAs, we're not we're not laughing all the way to the bank with this stuff. Let's just be honest here, Steve. So you so think those is, you think those numbers are manufactured uh, for political purposes? No, I don't think they're manufactured. 
I don't think they're manufactured. I'm just saying it's not changing how people perceive what's going on. Because, right. you know, that the big three used to be the stock market, the auto, and the houses. Stock market's doing good. You've got government money coming in like never before. I wonder if there's a connection there. But the housing market is flat, and the auto market is not doing very well either. So those are the big things that the middle class, you know, is looking at. So when that changes, we'll talk. But, you know, when you get into this whole thing as to how are we going to cover Donald Trump, right. do what your mother told you to do when you were a kid. Ignore the bully. If he's a bully, ignore him. But nobody wants to ignore him, Steve, because they're afraid if we ignore him, he's going to win the, the election. So every day, it's this rampage against this guy over every little thing they can find. Try ignoring him and see if he goes away. Let me ask you this, though, Sam. How can you ignore one of two principal candidates for president of the United States as a news station? How could we possibly ignore Donald Trump? There's not a lot of coverage on Biden. I can see a lot of people are ignoring Biden, hoping, hoping nobody sees what he's doing that's wrong. That's going on all day long, but we got to keep it on Trump. But this has been going on for, what, seven years? Trump hasn't gone away, and they haven't put him in jail. So if he's a bully, ignore him like Mom said to do. All right, thanks for the call, Sam. I didn't mean to cut you off there. Sam, a loyal listener from Illinois. Look, I'm looking at the text line right now. Steve, Trump is dangerous, irrational, unstable. That's, this is how he should be reported. Steve, cover Trump by counting the percentage of constant hateful words that come out of his mouth and that of his backers. All hate all the time. From the 847, I pray Trump is in jail. How can one man create such chaos? Uh, go get a job at CNN. You're just a Trump hater. Uh, let's see. Donald Trump should be evaluated based on the, evaluated based on the facts and not on what, what he says are the facts. It's a good point. Fair point. Uh, try covering it by being honest. Hmm. I think that's what I'm asking, right? What's the honest way we should cover Donald Trump? Should we ignore when he calls one of his opponents for, uh, lack of a better term, a pedophile? Should we ignore him when he uses what some people think are racist depictions of one of his current opponents, Nikki Haley? And somebody asked, somebody called him on it yesterday, member of the media, why do you keep referring to her by her given name instead of the name she's used most of her life, which is Nikki? Because he said he enjoys it. Is that is an an answer that a responsible politician should give in a question like that. He's doing it. Again, my opinion of what he's doing, which is what I'm encouraged to do on this show, because it's pointing out that she is from a family of immigrants. And in Donald Trump's brain, a dangerous place to be, my opinion, that's a slap or a cut that may get some voters riled up, passionate about America first. When the amazing fact about America is that we are a country of immigrants, whether that's from Europe, India, Mexico, South America, Africa. That's the, that's the country we live in. That is the country we live in. And to you know take cheap shots, I'm not going to ignore those cheap shots. Still can weigh in on my question, how do we cover Trump in 2024? Love to hear from you. How do we do this? Can't ignore him, even though that's what Sam sort of suggested there. Can't ignore the president either. When there's bad news, when he does something wrong, has to be reported. Problem with this president, and people are going to get mad at me for saying this, he's not out there enough to even essentially get himself in trouble. Light schedule, a lot of time off. 
and frankly doesn't do the number of pressers or press conferences that previous presidents that have done. And maybe that's for a legitimate reason. Maybe he's tired. I don't know what it is. And that begs the question of age, which is certainly part of this race as well. What do you think? 855-616-1620. The WTMJ talking text line. Just getting warmed up on this Tuesday. Asking the question, how should we, I, us, cover Donald Trump in 2024? By all accounts, he's going to be the nominee. Barring an incredible rise in the polls and in the votes, actual votes, which is frankly refreshing after it's been at least the last six months talking about polling, presidential polling. Not that I don't think it's accurate. I just think it's it's a lot more illuminating to see what people actually say when they or votes when they go to the polling polling a place. I think this is the reality we're facing is that we're going to have a Biden Trump 2.0. Uh, lots of text commentary. You're welcome to join on the phone as well. 855-616-1620, the WTMJ talking text line. Uh, for the 941, thanks for the long distance listen. You you cover Trump fairly right down the middle. He's a phenom. You can't defuse that to try and limit his momentum. He's a fraud at times. You have to point that out in his inaccuracies. Fashion your seatbelt is going to be a really bumpy ride. Uh, appreciate the, the kind words. Yeah. He's unlike any... He's like unlike any recent candidate we've seen for president. Let's put it that way. I'm sure there's been some nutty candidates over the years. Uh, from the 262, Trump is a jerk. Biden is somewhat likable, but increasing, increasingly incapable. All the charges brought against Trump seem to be brought by extreme Democrats, and all allegations against Biden are brought by extreme Republicans. With so much corruption in the government, how do we know what's true? Good question. The whole problem with our country is we've lost the value of the truth. I don't want spin. Maybe the best way is to elect Trump for four more years, and then we are rid of him. Interesting, somebody posed that on one of the weekend shows that I listened to. And uh, I'm not sure that would even do it. Because I don't see Donald Trump as a guy that's that's just going to go away quietly or peacefully. Now, I've seen and heard some really smart legal experts, which some I'm going to have on the show in the near future, who have said Donald Trump will be convicted of one or more of these charges. And generally, I think Jake Curtis illuminated this in his um, podcast that we're uh, we're putting out today on Decision Wisconsin on WTMJ.com, that the documents case in Florida is probably the strongest case against Donald Trump. He'll, he, he can be convicted of that, which would make him a felon. And recent polling, again, polling suggests that on that issue, voters have said, even Republican voters have said, if He's convicted of one of these charges, and that seems to be a strong case. Voters are less likely to put his name on their ballot or fill in the little box. And I think that's right. Uh, lots of texts, as I said. You guys are blowing up the WTMJ talk and text line. Uh, let's see. I agree with Sam. Ignore Trump. I, you can't ignore one of the two principal candidates for president. It's just not going to happen. Uh, the lies are spoken unless someone challenges challenges it, the politician gets away with it. Feed lies and then prove me wrong is Trump's way. He thinks an attorney can get him out of anything. Listen to C-SPAN. Can't listen to Trump and their supporters. Fact check him so many times he can't listen anymore because he's not telling the truth. The boy that cried wolf. I'll wrap it with this. We are not going to not talk about Trump. Double negative. You have to cover him. He's one of the two principal candidates. More than likely. And that may or may be decided as soon as tomorrow. 
Although I do think even barring a so-so performance, Nikki Haley will stay in the race, at least to, to her home state of South Carolina. And I would argue, my Republican friends, that a viable candidate in the Republican Party, other than Trump, is a smart play. Because given all the things that are swirling around the former president, we don't know if at some point at the convention or shortly before that, in July 2024, there won't be a desperate need for a candidate other than Trump, based on convictions, based on who knows what. That would be actually smart policy. So perhaps the, the play here for Nikki Haley, because Ron DeSantis has essentially dropped out, and everybody else that was challenging before that, Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy and others, they're not coming back. They're moving on. And the Haley campaign is latest this morning, said, we're not going anywhere. See you all in South Carolina. So that reality exists, which I think is a very smart play. Quick, couple quick texts, and then we'll move on. Uh, get over the fact that he's not politically correct. Is that the only thing that... Because I've seen this quote paraphrased a million times. I ignore the tweets, but I love his policy. That's, that's me paraphrasing what the general response is. Really? So are we at a point in our country where conduct... Words, behavior, no longer matter as long as the policy is what you like. Seems rather, um, I don't know if selfish is the right word, limiting. Wouldn't we want the highest standard in our political representatives? Wouldn't we want that? Uh, one of the texters says, try tr- treating all candidates equally. I'm here for you. It's what we try to do every day on WTMJ. Thanks for tuning in on this Tuesday. I appreciate each and every one of you for taking the time to find the show and the station. However you consume, over the air, online podcast. We're available now wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Spotify, YouTube, all that stuff. Always exciting to see people uh, chime in based on those views versus the the live version on the radio. So, And I re- realize it's a new world when it comes to how you consume media. But I appreciate you finding us nonetheless. I'm not often shocked or surprised by a headline, but I, I saw this one a couple days ago, and I didn't get to it yesterday, and I, I, I got to talk about this. And it, go, it takes us to Massachusetts, state of Massachusetts. Headline, Massachusetts Hospital warns patients could be denied care if their tone of voice or body language is considered hostile. And I, you know, I know I have a lot of friends who work in healthcare, and I, I've I've known that this has been an issue for a while. I guess I never it never rose to the point where I thought this was something that could be a decision point for de- denying care. Massachusetts Hospital, Milford Regional Medical Center, updated patient conduct outline. Warn patients that. They could be denied medical care if they exhibit the wrong body language, body language or tone of voice. Recently announced changes. Uh, one of the directors says everyone should expect a safe, caring, and inclusive environment in all of our spaces. Our patient and visitor code of conduct helps us meet this goal. Words or actions that are disrespectful, racist, discriminatory, hostile, or harassing are not welcome and will be not be tolerated. Including offensive comments about religion, race, gender, orientation, sexual vulgar words or actions. If these new rules are broken, hospital could refuse patient future 
important qualifier, non-emergency care. So emergency, basically you can do whatever you want. My words. So I was thinking about this story. And I'd love to hear your take on this. I've been in hospitals enough and you know, clinics, doctor's offices, to see some of this play out. Um, often related to the you know the mask policy, that's that's the the big one for people that they lose their mind because somebody requires a mask. And if you don't know, and if you're not following the COVID kind of uh, reemergence, if you can use that term, non scientific, but you know the fact that COVID is still out there, and, and in some places the cases are rising, the case numbers, some places have reinstituted mask policy. This is where you start to see people lose their, you know what, minds, where you hear. Profanities, you hear threatening voices. How many of us, raise your hand in Radio Land, I know we're on radio, but have been in one of these situations. I, my wife just experienced this recently where someone was losing her mind over this. I've seen it. I've seen it at a pharmacy, for Pete's sakes. Early days of the pandemic, I told this story. Some guy whose entire COVID knowledge came from his uncle in Germany or Switzerland, whatever it was, I've kind of forgotten the details now, decided to lecture everybody in the pharmacy about why masks made no difference. And everybody out there, I'm, I'm generalizing, but everyone has seen or heard stuff like this. My question is simple for you. Would you go to a hospital, not emergency, not we're not talking about emergency situations because they have to take every patient. In non-emergency situations, if they had a code of conduct like this that basically said, Behave yourself or we're not going to serve you? Would you change your affiliation, your hospitals, your doctors, based on that policy? 855-616-1620, the uh, WTMJ talking text line. Would you? I actually like the policy. For me, it's a refresher course on how we should be acting. And if the candidates for president don't want to act like grown-ups, Maybe we can at least insist that the patients, non-emergency patients in a hospital or a clinic or a doctor's office, at least follow the basic rules, which is be respectful. What do you think? After this. Should the patient's behavior be a factor in a hospital, doctor's office, clinician's building decision to serve you or not? David starts us off from Mequon. Hey, David. Welcome to the show. Uh, good morning. Two weeks ago, I would have probably would have agreed with you. Unfortunately, I'm in a bad position with my father. He's in a facility in Mequon, and I'm not going to name the facility, but my dad is in a very bad way. He's officially in hospice. Right. He's mentally not 100% there, and he will say things that are that's not the best. And he's angry. And the question is, and why I said to your screen caller is this, because he really has no control over what's going on, and he's miserable. He's used to being, he was, you know, very independent up until just, you know, very recently. Um, yeah, that's a problem, because I told your screen caller, if he got discharged and every facility was, similar to what you're talking about, where would he go? That's a great... Yeah, it's an interesting question, David. I, 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 I guess I would ask, yeah. start with this. I think that that may be different than what we're talking about. This is somebody who's... Yeah. And, and I, you know, I, I hope your dad 
gets better, but I think this is somebody who's dealing with significant medical challenges. I would think there would be an allowance for that. I think we're talking about first-time patients that are coming in and are just acting like fools from the moment they hit the door right. because they don't like something about the the hospital or doctor's office policy. I think there's a distinction right. there. Well, well, I will say this. This is the first time this has ever happened to him. He's never been in an assisted living facility, and he was in a hospital prior. And I can tell you, when he went, when they officially pushed him into hospice, the hospital was dreadful. I can't even tell you what a difference in reaction it was between the doctors and the nurse. I tried to get some paperwork done, signed, you know, so I could get some time off. Mm -hmm. The doctor refused to sign the paperwork because apparently he's not the normal person on the weekends. But I had to submit it to to work because uh, it's part of the labor uh, end of things, so you don't get fired uh, because you're actually taking care of a loved one. Right. And so I, I would I would just be very careful. You know, every every person's situation is different. Maybe if the person's in his fifties and he has a maybe he's totally fine and he's just badgering people, that's one thing. But unfortunately, a lot of people that are in the hospitals and that are in these assisted facilities are much older and they're not they're very vulnerable and yeah. their minds are not the best yeah i appreciate your perspective david and, and that's something we have to consider as well richard from illinois next up hey richard welcome to the show hey steve i'm with you on this uh, I, I feel for for the previous caller and his dad but i think that there would have to be parameters set up for certain stuff and they'd have to have guidelines and whatnot um, but but i'm totally with you and there's too much disrespect and bad behavior my wife works in a pharmacy, and every other day she comes home talking about how many customers were griping and complaining and yelling and being pissy and moaning and stuff. And so, yeah, there's just too much of a place. I think there needs to be parameters so a receptionist who's having a bad day can't just, you know, deny, deny, deny. So Yeah, good, good thoughts, Richard. I appreciate you taking the call. Look, I'll say this. i got to take another break here. Your conduct matters. And I have seen an erosion of conduct in every situation. The caller Richard mentioned the pharmacy. I've related that story. People acting like absolute fools. Dentist offices, I've seen it there. Grocery stores, banks, post offices. I know we live in this country where we have a lot of freedoms, but the freedom to belittle employees, customer service employees specifically, or or frontline employees, is something I'm not comfortable with, and I don't think we should be. And if a hospital in Massachusetts, and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this catches on. Yes, there should be exceptions. And one of our previous callers mentioned why that's important. And I agree with them. But somebody who's coming in to see a dentist or a medical provider that can walk through that door and can't walk through that door without behaving themselves, find a different place to go. And maybe this is the erosion Related to politics, I've been talking about for a long time, and I know some of you don't care about that. Well, I think a lot of us do. And don't be surprised if your behavior will try to will be at least attempted to be regulated by institutions that provide services to all of us. And it, whether it's a code of conduct or just act like a grown-up, maybe it's time we need a refresher. We always talk about this with kids, right? Rules matter. Enforce the rules, discipline, supervision. Isn't it shocking that in 2024 we may need that same 
code of conduct for adults? And the answer is, I'll answer my own question. Yes. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's WTMJ Now. News, opinions, Wisconsin. Everything you need to know in the Badger State and beyond. Here's your host, Steve Scafidi. Hey, good morning, Wisconsin. Good morning, everybody else who's listening out there in Radio Land. Appreciate each and every one of you every day, Monday through Friday, 9 to noon on WTMJ. Simple question. Can you teach patriotism? Right? Love of country. Love of this country. Since we're residing in the United States right now. I know we have listeners overseas, but even in your country, wherever you're at, can you teach patriotism? The celebration of all the things great about your country, your flag, the banner of whatever your country stands for, and ours probably, unlike most, is freedom. Freedom to do a lot of things. Say what you want to say. Vote for who you want to vote for, sort of. And live a life that is not heavily controlled by the government. Why do I bring this up? Well, there are attempts by the state legislature in Wisconsin to require the State Department of Public Instruction, DPI, is the common acronym used, to develop essentially civic education for kindergarten through high school, emphasizing patriotism, contrasting our form of government with communism, socialism, totalitarianism. It would also revise the standard for a high school diploma. Currently, as it sits today, Wisconsin students have to have three credits of social studies. I would say that's grossly inadequate, but others may disagree. The bill would carve out a half credit of that specifically for civics instruction. Now, the interesting thing about this question is we know that we have been suffering from a lack of understanding and appreciation for the history of our country and, frankly, that matter for the history of the world. Look no further than essentially forgetting what happened during the Holocaust in in Europe in the last century. Pretty obvious that young people either think it's made up or they don't just have any clue about what happened to the Jewish population, primarily in Germany, but in other places in Europe as well. If you ask students, there's, a, there's been a, uh, a lot of data recently. This one comes from the Annenberg Public Policy Center's annual Civics Knowledge Survey. Only 5% of adults knew their rights under the First Amendment. Only 1 in 10 knew that the First Amendment includes a right to petition the government. 34% of participants didn't know the three branches of government. 1 in 6 didn't know any of the three branches. Right? Much of what's happening in Wisconsin mirrors a similar bill in Florida, which was passed in 2021, emphasizing the founding documents, the Constitution, celebrates patriotism, makes those comparisons between some of those more dictatorial or oppressive forms of leadership and government. 855-616-1620. We have social studies. Should we teach patriotism? And more importantly, the big question I asked at the start of this segment, can you teach patriotism? I think you can. If you ignore it, 
or two sides everything, which is a common problem, not just for media, but also for the educational system. I think you lose something. Otherwise, why have borders at all? If there's no difference in being being an American citizen versus pick another country, why do we have borders? Why would we celebrate our country? Why would we cheer for American athletes versus athletes from another country? I think it's a no-brainer. Of course you can teach patriotism, but you got to start by teaching it. And unfortunately, there's been too many people who have said basically, we're going to focus on the negatives of this country, negatives of our culture, negatives of our society, over everything else. The oppressiveness of this, what I would say is the greatest country on the planet, versus the celebration of the freedoms we represent. Why do I say that? Because the one thing that people don't get, they often forget, the freedoms we enjoy are because of our great country. They are often freedoms that other countries, other citizens don't get to enjoy. Earl starts us off from the northwest side. Hi, Earl. How you doing, man? But I, you know, I want to challenge you sure. and and others on patriotism because patriotism is more than waving a flag or on the Fourth of July a parade and celebrating. When when a nation is headed in the wrong direction, and yes. This nation allows us an opportunity to have an opinion on that. When you see that the nation is headed in the wrong direction to challenge that nation, to live up to the ideals, ideals, to live up to the Constitution, to live up to the Bill of Rights, which our nation has not been able to do, to, to, to talk about how great the nation is when it doesn't live up to those ideas, I think there's something wrong with that. Well, no, no, no nation is perfect, Earl. And I, I would. I know, but we're talking about we're talking about this nation, yes. which which points its finger at other nations about the shortcomings of other nations. I think when I look at this country, and I do believe you can teach patriotism, but you also have to live it, as you just said. You have to understand that you know diversity matters. You have to understand that fairness and equity for all people is important. But at the same time, as an understanding, I often often use this example. I'm curious what you think about it. There's a reason why people from all over this planet want to come here. What do you think that reason is, Earl? No, listen, I understand the opportunities that exist in this nation, but as a black man, I also understand that diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is something that should be occurring in a nation, to force it to live up to what it claims to be is now being dismantled and challenged. And so from my perspective, as a black American, and knowing the history of our nation, and in, in some instances, even present day, to see the nation doing and some of the things that are happening in this nation, uh, it's hard for me to talk about, you know, how excited I am about patriotism, because patriotism is not equitable. I, t- I completely understand that. I think that's a fair point of view for someone who, who is an African-American who has lived a different reality than someone like me who is a white American. I, th- I, I perfectly understand that. I think we can do both. I think we can be both better and understand that because of the uniqueness of this country, because of its makeup as a country of people from all over this planet, this great planet, 
that we all share. We can celebrate both things and work harder. That's that's thanks for the call, Earl. That's my mission. It's not one or the other. We could recognize there's still challenges related to race and gender and in this country. But don't dismiss, and this is not directed to Earl, this is to all of you. Don't dismiss the fact that when a family in Europe or South Africa or Africa or wherever, India, is making the decision on where to send their child for university-level education, more often than not, it's the United States. And there's a reason for that. And I think one of the problems we're facing in our current environment is we don't celebrate enough. We attack, we complain, and we we use those complaints as a cancer in what is still the best example of a democracy in this world. Lamar joins us from Orlando. Hey, hey, Lamar, welcome to the show. Hey, Steve. Um, so to answer your question, I absolutely think we could te- teach patriotism. Um, when I was in elementary school, uh, I remember celebrating Flag Day. I remember having so much pride and being excited about Flag Day. Uh, I remember, you know, understanding, the, you know, the, the pledge, uh, although I'd learned later learned the information I was given is different than what we originally did the pledge, but, you know, it's neither here nor there. The, one of the biggest problems that we have is that, especially with our, with our elementary school kids, is that we've taken away their innocence. They're overexposed to, to like, the partisan politics, which – Again, back in elementary school, shout out to Sherman Elementary School, we had, we had a mock trial with, you know, George Bush and Michael Dukakis in elementary school, and it wasn't partisan. Like, you know, we got a chance to, like, really take pride in, you know, our elections and things like that because they, they didn't, like, and again, I know that people say our schools are hyper-liberal. I was a big Bush fan in elementary school because, again, it, we, the, the teachers didn't push their opinions on us. They kept it innocent and had such pride in this country um, and had a much deeper understanding of history too. Yeah. Um, and we don't—they don't do any of those things anymore. No. And I think that that's one of the biggest problems is that we take away the innocence of our kids at a young age, and they just get worse as they get older. Yeah, I love the point. Phones don't help. Yeah, thanks for the call, Lamar. I love the point about the partisan piece. Yeah, it, it's become that—not just a general understanding. This is a great country. I love this country. Is it perfect? Not even close. But the cancer, I use that term on purpose twice now, is that we are have turned into a country of complainers. And social media certainly enabled all of that. We cheer for bad news because our side benefits politically from that interpretation of what should be just good news for everybody. It's like stock, mar- stock market doing great, but ah, that's only rich people. When, when the, you know, the fact is it's everybody. Anyone who has a 401k, which is not just rich people, trust me. Are there challenges? You bet. Every day. Front and center. Things to fix? Absolutely. But when you when you now say that police officers, police officers in school trigger people, when you now say that any interpretation of good economic news is certainly political and only benefits one side versus the other, when you only say that we are going to focus on the problems in our society, labeling people as they're the problem. When you only say those things, the other part, the what I would say the patriotism part, gets left and in some cases is mocked. 
Don't tell me I have to cheer for the flag. Don't tell me I have to cheer for the United States. Well, what's the point then? Why do we live here? If borders don't matter and countries don't matter and leadership styles and forms of government don't matter, the answer is they do matter. And don't throw out all the good things because you're mad about one bad thing, as significant as that bad thing may be. Some Texas responding to my question, can, can you teach patriotism? I think you can. Now, Texas says civics education is great, but don't base it on patriotism. Forced patriotism is not patriotism. I'm not talking about forced patriotism. But if you live in the United States, you learn in the United States, should we not, not want to teach our children and young adults that there's a pretty interesting example of how a country could be run in this world that we live in? Because there's a lot of horrific examples on the other side of that equation, where women don't have any rights, children are abused, they basically sacrifice everything for one group of people, and they dominate everyone else, and it's oppressive, and it's it's violent, and I think it's, it's important to point out those differences. Uh, this is from the 414. I think it's a good idea. I think most young adults don't have the understanding the same way the older generations do. Do you think Brittany Griner was taught patriotism? I think she's learning. Of course, the uh, WNBA star was held in Russia for violating their drug policy, later a negotiated uh, return to the United States. And, and when she got back, she certainly touted the values and the freedoms that her citizenship from this country we live in gave her. And I think that's a... That's a good example. And, you know, so much of high school is, is, is related to things other than the learning part. I mean, that's the reality, right? Facing that reality and saying, you know what, let's at least try. Again, not fake patriotism, not jets flying over or, you know, the, you want a current political example? Candidates, like, fighting all over them, you know, getting in each other's way to have more flags on stage. I think we're up to, like, 20 now. One flag is good. You don't need 20, you don't need 13, you don't need whatever. But now it's, it's how many flags can you have or how many jets can you stand in front of. It's all the nonsense associated with the hyperbole of, hyperbole of politics, which we don't need. It's silly. I started us off by saying, can you teach patriotism? I think you can. I mean, obviously, like any class, it requires a great teacher, a great lesson plan, a curriculum the right sources but you know to have you know this i was given some of the statistics out before so the dazzling details of the lack of understanding of our country three branches of governments um you know things like that matter when you're looking at the history and somebody a lot of textures have said actually well why don't you just teach in a history class well american history was part of my education in high school i don't know that it is now it's probably an option world history certainly part of that option those class uh, decisions you make, coursework that you take. I just think we have to get better at it. And I guess one of the mission statements of this show now or in the future is that we have to be smart, educated, fact-based, and less partisan, not denying that those, the other options of all those things I just listed certainly get people's attention and certainly make some people a lot of money. That's the reality of the world we live in. I'm just arguing that 
we're seeing how that reality plays out. Disrespect for elected officials, dislike of the institution of government, lack of any respect for governmental institutions, hatred of each other based on politics. I could go on and on. That's the byproduct of that. In my world, teaching patriotism, teaching American history is important. And that's where I would start. After the break, the other side of the political aisle, a conservative columnist, my friend Christian Snyder, will join us after this on WTMJ Now. Always enjoy my conversations with Christian Snyder, author, columnist. You see his work at nationalreview.com and uh, all things politics, certainly part of his uh, his toolkit, and he also is a, a great source for culture stuff, too, music as well. So Christian Schneider joins us every other week on the uh, show. Welcome, Christian. Hey, thanks for having me again. So we're going to be more political-focused today because, I mean, there's a lot of, obviously, things that are happening. New Hampshire primary today, Ron DeSantis dropping out. So let's kind of start with the, the big picture. I've had a lot of conversation with uh, folks on the show, away from the show, about what's Iowa said what New Hampshire might do to the race. Let me ask it this way. Is this now just basically Trump-Biden 2.0? Is that what, is that what we're going to get? Uh, yeah. <laughs> in okay. a word, yes. Well, thanks for joining me, Christian. I appreciate your like... <laughs> Yeah, talk to you in two weeks. Um, look, Nikki Haley needs to win tonight. She's probably not going to do that. Uh, John Dickerson of CBS News had a, had a good line. He said uh, Haley's only hope tonight to make it close enough to where Trump accuses her of trying to steal it. Um, but she's she's got to win tonight in order to carry that on to South Carolina, where she's down by you know 25 to 30 points uh, to Trump in her own home state. So they know her pretty well, and it's going to be tough for her to, to turn that around. So, um, you know, people made fun of me when I said after Iowa that it's a two-person race because – uh, Haley finished third, and all the DeSantis people were like, well, Ron DeSantis finished second. Why isn't he still in the race? But uh, he was never playing in New Hampshire, and he's in single digits in South Carolina, and then, of course, just dropped out. So um, I told you guys all along it was a two-person race, but uh, after tonight, it's probably a one-person race. A couple things on that. So obviously strategy matters. I was just having a, a social media conversation with a friend of mine about, you know, why we have caucuses in the New Hampshire primary, which I think are unrepresentative of the population of our country, but I understand the tradition of how we do things. And they they may demonstrate to parties, which is sort of the point for candidates, I guess, that they're the uh, they're running the right, right race. So strategy for Haley and DeSantis, did they do the same thing? Are they different? Talk about that. So I have a lot of friends on the right who are – never Trumpers, who have been bitterly critical of both DeSantis and Haley for not going after Donald Trump enough. Um, And I have, too. I've written pieces where, you know, Haley said some weird things like, uh, you know, wokeness is even worse than uh, the pandemic and, uh, you know, saying she'd pardon Trump and all that kind of stuff. Um, But I think she's gotten it together here in in the last week. It's not going to be enough. But, uh, you know, we have examples of people who went after Trump and they're called their name, Chris Christie, who had three percent in the polls and was out, uh, you know, a week ago. So it's it's kind of a 
you know, all, all the candidates would have had to agree, we're all going to go after Trump because of the, the one candidate that broke that pledge and, uh, you know, refused to go after Trump would have a leg up. And, uh, you know, so it didn't work out. Had Nikki Haley gone after Trump like Chris Christie had, she would have been out of the race when Chris Christie was. So I think she played it right to this point uh, and is now going after him. The question is whether Trump was ever beatable to begin with. And I think the answer is probably no. But, you know, she gave it a shot. And now Haley is indicated today on, on the campaign trail in New Hampshire in advance of the, the results you know, later tonight that she's in it to at least South Carolina. A part of me wants to think that maybe the strategy strategy for some candidates, and, and she's the only one really left, is that if something happens with Trump, whatever that is, and you know whether we're going to have convictions or not or, or acquittals, who knows? I mean, anything can happen in politics in America, and anything can happen in the court system. Is this a, a basically a strategy and a campaign of now, hey, if you need me, I'm a viable candidate, I'm here. Is that the Nikki Haley strategy? Right. So you have to you have to game out when when the party picks Trump, what is exactly going to happen? Because, you know, we could head into the uh, Republican convention in Milwaukee with Trump being a convicted felon. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he could he could be found guilty of something uh, at that point. So then what what does the party do then? They don't go with whoever Trump picked as his vice president because they hadn't run a race. I mean, they basically, you know, if he cannot serve, then they have to start the whole process over again. And, you know, does, does Ron DeSantis come back in? You know, is Haley still in the race at that point? Is, you know, does Chris Christie come back in? Do you just throw the whole thing wide open and have to have to run a full primary in about a month? I mean, I know Republicans want Donald Trump, but you have to game this out, you know, what the natural consequence of of him being your nominee is. So or, you know, he runs, he wins, and then we have a, a president who goes to prison right. <laughs> while he's the president. And then he has the, the choice of whether to pardon himself. So uh, that's where we're headed. And uh, I don't know. So for for Haley, I guess, you know, she's. She, she put out a statement today that said not only she's, is she staying in through uh, South Carolina, but she's also staying in through Super Tuesday, which is in March. Right. Maybe she's, you know, maybe she's waiting for something to happen to Trump. That seems like the strategy all along. They think he's going to go to prison, or something's going to happen, or you know, he's going to have some sort of health problem. And so, the, the longer you stay in, the better. But um, I don't know. They've that's been the strategy for four years now, and uh, <laughs> uh, they're still waiting. Somebody asked me this question the other day. I think it was on one of my Ask Steve Anything's. How would how would we, given these candidates, this former president, this party, Republicans, how would we define conservatism now? Because I'm not sure that I even have the answer to that, and I'd be curious to know what you think. Yeah, I mean, conservatism now is whatever Donald Trump says. It's, uh, you know, protectionism. It's uh, more regulation, uh, especially in areas of uh, like social media and things like that. It's basically just whatever Donald Trump wants. It's not the, the traditional, you know, small government, less regulation, uh, lower taxes, that type of thing. And what has me worried as somebody who kind of grew up in that tradition, kind of, the, you know, the Paul Ryan tradition, um, 
you know, it's been Trump has had a hold on the party since 2015 now, 2016. And so the whole you almost have a decade now where people are growing up without that sort of, you know, kind of traditional conservatism. So they're all going to forget that it ever even existed. So uh, we we may never go back to that. I, I would bet that we probably don't because uh, conservatism as it is. Uh, defined now as something completely different, and you know the old the old styles in the past. Now, do you see it as some people do that it's the beginning of this great separation, this great rift in Republicans, whatever populists are, and whatever traditional like Reagan conservatives are? Is this the beginning of that schism? I mean, there's a couple ways to look at it. It's you know, yes, that certainly does exist and in uh, you know there are now think tanks that uh, that are there to promote trumpism and all that thing all that stuff but when trump goes away i mean does all of this still stick around the the appeal to all of this is because trump is the one carrying it now can you find another candidate that's as charismatic and bombastic and all that stuff to carry this message out I'm not sure you can, so I don't know what's going to happen at that point. You might very well have a split, maybe a third party, something like that. But um, right now, Trumpism is is dominant, but it it may only last as long as he's around. I was watching uh, Michael Smirconish's show on CNN on Saturday, and he was had a guest on. They were talking about the fact that, and Michael did a commentary on it about the fact that we talk about Trump, members of the media. We actually are are propelling Trump even more into the spotlight. Do you buy that? Buy into that? Yeah, it's weird because, you know, the big criticism of cable networks in 2016 was that you showed every Trump rally and therefore gave him, you know, $60 million worth of free media or whatever. Uh, And so they're trying to to do the opposite now and not show him at all. But then you have some columnists saying, like, look, you guys don't understand what Trump is actually saying. You have to you have to see Trump in order to believe what what he's actually standing for. Um, So. Now I think they may have overcorrected in the other the other direction where people see Trump as, you know, now they see him as a former president, whereas if you actually saw what he was saying, some of it is just complete loony off, you know, off the rails. Um, so they may be protecting him by not having him on now. Christian Snyder, author, columnist, joining us. We'll take a break here. After the break, is Trump actually trying to convince people that Nikki Haley is not eligible to be president? It seems what's somewhat startling, but we'll... Ask Christian about that question and more after this on WTMJ. My friend Christian Snyder, author and columnist, uh, does a lot of great work on the fun side of things, too, as well as great work on the uh, SNL podcast, which I'll, I'll let him talk about that in a little bit. Um, I asked the question, or at least I teased the question before the break. Donald Trump's going around the country now and focusing, of course, on New Hampshire lately, uh, referring to Nikki Haley by her birth name, questioning her citizenship. She was born. She was born in this country, for Pete's sake. <laughs> I guess I, I understand why he's doing it because it, you know, it riles up his base. It tries to, you know, paint Im- immigrants as the an- enemy. But I mean, come on, here. I mean, what are we doing? <laughs> well, that's the that's the ultimate question. I mean, <laughs> uh, he's done this his entire career. He takes uh, anybody that's running against him that has like a skin tone darker than Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> and tries to make him into some secret, you know, secret foreigner. Um, he came to power within the GOP because he did, you know, the, the birther stuff with uh, Barack Obama. Then again, he did it with Ted Cruz, who was born in uh, in Canada. Uh, then he did it with uh, um, 
Kamala Harris and now Nikki Haley. It, it's his go-to move. And you're right, he's starting to use her birth name, Nimarata. Um, and, it, you know, he, he's purposely misspelling it to, to make it look like Nimrod. Right. <laughs> like, um, right. And it's just all, it's all so unseemly. And it's all nonsense, too, because, you know, Kamala Harris's parents were not U.S. citizens uh, at the time she was born in the U.S., and that's the same with, with Nikki Haley. So it's, a, it's all nonsense. It's just a, a screaming dog whistle, uh, a racist dog whistle, I should add, to, uh, to his base. And, you know, everybody just seems to be fine with it. This is one of the crazier things that, uh, that uh, you know, we're not seeing by the, the cable stations not showing Trump anymore is how, how out, of, out of it he is now. He's, he's actually taken to calling uh, Nikki Haley bird brain on on social media, like I guess he can't remember her, her name anymore, so he just called her bird brain. Um, so that's where we are. Congrats, America! We've 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 done it. <laughs> yeah. The, the other question that you just raised, that I, I didn't think about, and we hadn't discussed it before the, the your appearance. Um, the decision made by I know MSNBC didn't cover any of the uh, the Trump uh, you know speech after Iowa, and I don't know what they'll do after New Hampshire. There's some pushback from other media organizations that say, you know what. If he's going to be the candidate, you, you kind of have to sort of cover that. Where do you where do you come down on that question? I mean, I think there's a middle ground between showing some of what he does without all of it. Uh, I think CNN on the night that he won Iowa, they ran about five to ten minutes of him, you know, thanking people, and he was actually fairly gracious after he won Iowa, uh, and he talked a little bit. But then he immediately took a turn into, you know, immigrants are poisoning the blood of our nation, that type of stuff. And then they cut away from it uh, just because, yes, you have to show him. But are you then on the hook for kind of all the stuff that he says that could be harmful or damaging or. Um, but on the other hand, you know, he is he is the front runner. He's probably going to be there's a 50 50 chance he's going to be president in a couple of years. So I don't know. It's a tough one for tough one for cable news i'm having an ongoing social media conversation about the way that we select our nominees and and i'm i'm discussing with a republican strategist who said the system is just fine the the caucus in iowa early new hampshire south carolina nevada um and i would argue that given where we're at politically in this country and the hyperpartisanship, lack of effective policy and legislation in congress that we are failing miserably um what do you think well, the fact that we're going to end up with a an election that 70% of Americans don't want shows you that the process is broken. Um, and I've written for years about ways to fix it, you know, wait through the through the primary process, uh, you know, switching up, you know, having regional primaries so it's not just Iowa and New Hampshire every year because they're not really that representative of the U.S. in general. Um, you know, just the way that we hold primaries, like let's – cut down these candidates, you know, week after week. So we finally get to, to what we want. It just doesn't make sense the way we do it. And it doesn't, it also doesn't help that, you know, when we do have a front runner, you have guys like Ron DeSantis, who you remember at the beginning of the campaign, when Donald Trump called Ron DeSantis a groomer and said that he liked to take young girls out and mm -hmm. beer and things like that. And then you have DeSantis dropping out and endorsing him, <laughs> endorsing Donald Trump, the man who said all this, who called him Ron Dank, the sanctimonious for months and months. It's just, it's just so awful. 
you know, these people are unwilling to stand up because they want a future in the party. And, you know, that, that's just the way we are. I actually wrote about this four years ago. Um, I looked back at Richard Nixon and all the Republicans that stood by Richard Nixon, uh, you know, well after it was it was clear that he was, uh, you know, going to lose the presidency. And you had names like Ronald Reagan and George Bush, George H.W. Bush, who all stuck with Nixon through the bitter, to the bitter end. And it helped them in their careers later on. So uh, that's obviously the blueprint of what people are doing here. If you want to keep your career alive, you got to stick with Trump. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past Nikki Haley to endorse Trump at some point when she's finally out of the race. But, you know. That's what you got to do, I guess. That was my next question. If she if she endorses Trump, like how how do you stand there after that announcement? What you know, whether she does it or not, we don't know. And then endorse the person that you just challenged for not for lying and for you know, it's the Ted Cruz thing. He basically stood up there a few years ago and said, "You'll never attack my wife." Blah blah blah. And then he, here he is, you know, a couple weeks ago endorsing Trump for president. I don't know how you can do that with a straight face and not feel like you've just sold your soul to the devil. Right. People like Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott and Ted Cruz, these are, these are the reason people hate politicians. But because we have politicians like that, they feel like they need a strong man like Donald Trump, which, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's ironic and it's working at cross purposes, but that's where we are. So, um, yeah, I mean, DeSantis literally a week ago said, you know, you could be the worst candidate, but as long as you kiss the ring for Donald Trump, he'll support you. And then he gets out of the race, and, of course, he, he kisses the ring immediately. So, yeah, that's the quality of politician we have in America today. All right, we're going to take a break. I want to talk about something fun after the break. What season of SNL are you now watching? Watching uh, Almost Done with 15. 15. You only got, what, 30? 30... <laughs> left. 35 to go. <laughs> Christian Snyder joining us on WTMJ. We'll take a quick break here, and we'll wrap the show talking about something fun with uh, a guy who knows his stuff when it comes to SNL and a lot of other things after this. Talking with uh, Christian Snyder, author, columnist. His book, Anti-Knowledge, I, it's, it's, the full name is Essays from the Era of Negotiable Truth. And uh, Christian, I often refer to this as a great... Uh, airplane read. I read it on my way back from Italy uh, last year, and I've actually gone back and reread some of the stuff. And it's it's a kind of a a great sample. It's it's sort of like a Reader's Digest of all the issues, cultural issues, political issues that we've talked about for years. It's a it's a brilliant piece. And I guess my it kind of leads into my next question: like, when's your next book coming out? <laughs> uh, I mean, I've scribbled a little bit here and there, but uh, it, it's going to be a while. This. This SNL thing, having to, having to watch a full season of SNL every week is is kind of taking up all my time. Yeah, he's, he, he along with, I think it's Scott Bertram, is that right? Yes. Yes, I have watched every episode of the Now Through Season 15, you said? Correct. Uh, of the, the great show, Saturday Night Live, and uh, their podcast is amazing, and it looks at the, the cast of characters, and then there's a lot of cast of characters. So what is Season 15 saying to you? Well, season 14 uh, is in our grading. We go through and we grade every single sketch and every single episode was the best season that we've graded so far, even counting the first five seasons with all the original cast. Um, You know, you have Phil Hartman, you have Dana Carvey, you have John Lovitz, who's actually amazing Mm -hmm. and who I, you know, you kind of think of him as the third fiddle behind the, the big guys, but 
John Lovitz is amazing, as is Victoria Jackson, who uh, gets a bad rap sometimes just because of her voice. But uh, so yeah, we're on to season fifteen. It's not it's not great. Uh, Mike Myers just joined the the cast, so you have uh, a lot of Wayne's World. You have uh, Sprockets. I don't know if you remember. Oh that yeah, yeah, that German guy uh, jumping around. Yeah, now's the time when Sprockets can only dance. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's picking up. You've had the we've had the same cast now, I think, for four years, and then season sixteen is when a young man by the name of Chris Farley shows up. So, wow. It is amazing that the people that have been on that show, and that speaks to the longevity of that program. Yeah, I mean, you see echoes of of culture, and you know, even in the politics that we see today, uh, are all echoed in in past episodes. It kind of gives you an idea that nothing's ever really new. Um, I mean, you just saw this weekend uh, Jacob Alordi was the uh, was the host, and. There are like three sketches about how good looking he is. Yeah, he's good looking, but most people don't know who the heck he is. Right. People were complaining online that like the only joke that the show had this week was that he's good looking. But <laughs> right. We, uh, you know, you go back to season fourteen when Mel Gibson hosted, and little that's literally the same the same thing when Mel Gibson hosted. There's one, there's a sketch called Mel Gibson Dream Gynecologist, <laughs> who uh, has the you know the kind of same kind of thing. So. Um, yeah, it's kind of kind of neat seeing the echoes through the years. How can folks find the podcast? It's at uh, wasn'tthatspecial.com. That's wasn'tthatspecial.com. It's all one word. Uh, and then on uh, X Twitter, you can find it at 50 Years of SNL. Christian Snyder, always great to talk to you. We'll do it again in a couple of weeks. Yeah, thanks for having me.